Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. Before we get to this week's show, a quick reminder that on Monday afternoon, the sixth and final session of the 2022 Darkwater Project Colloquium titled Historical American Art, Whiteness, and the Idea of the American Nation will hit your man podcast feed. We'll be talking about Tyler Stovall's terrific recent book, White Freedom, The Racial History of an Idea, and looking at artworks by artists such as George Caleb Bingham, William Wetmore Story, Casper Buberl, and Lava Thomas. On to this week's show. My first guest is photographer Anthony Barboza. Eye Dreaming, a monograph spanning Barboza's 60-year career, was just published by Getty Publications. The book comes out just as the two-year, four-venue exhibition Working Together, Photographers of the Kamoingi Workshop, which presented Barboza as a major and instigating figure, concluded. iDreaming features Barboza's 1960s addresses of the condition of the United States, his portraits of major figures in the humanities, sport, and entertainment, his pictures of jazz musicians, his street photography, fashion photography, examples of his editorial, album cover, and advertising work, and plenty more. The book features contributions from Aaron Bryant, Maisie M. Harris, and Hilton Alls. IndieBound and Amazon offer it for about 40 bucks. It is an absolute treasure. On the second segment, Micah Pollock on Tadashi Sato at the University of Hawaii. But first, Anthony Barboza, after the break. Big news. After two plus years of pandemic, live audience Modern Art Notes podcast tapings are back. I'm thrilled to share that we'll be taping a program with the artist Sheila Prebright at the Georgia Museum of Art in Athens on Thursday, December 8th. Showtime is 5.30 p.m. Bright's work is included in the Georgia Museum of Art exhibition Reckonings and Reconstructions, Southern Photography from the Do Good Fund. I'm looking forward to talking with Bright about all kinds of things including her hashtag 1960Now photographic series, which reflects on the fight for racial equity from 1960 to the present day and combines portraits of social justice activists past and present with documentary images from recent protests in the United States. That work has been on view at museums and galleries all over the country, including in Atlanta, New York City, Durham, Charlottesville, and plenty more. And this fall, you can also see Wright's work in Free as They Want to Be, Artists Committed to Memory, at the National Underground Railroad Freedom Center in Cincinnati. The exhibition is part of Cincy's Photo Focus Biennial. Sheila Prebright on the Modern Art Notes podcast on Thursday, December 8th at the Georgia Museum of Art. Hope to see you there. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Philip Guston Now, showcasing a retrospective of the artist's 50-year career. See Gustin's shift from abstract expressionism to humanism as his art reflects social injustice and excavates the anxieties of personal conviction. On view through January 16th at the MFAH. Learn more at mfah.org slash philipgustin. Nasher Sculpture Center presents Matthew Ronay, The Crack, The Swell, An Earth, An Ode, an exhibition that transports you into a surreal world. Brooklyn-based artist Matthew Ronay combines vivid wood sculptures, poetry, biology, and nature into an otherworldly experience. Plan your visit at nashersculpturecenter.org. And we're back. Anthony Barboza, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. Thank you. I wanted to start with you joining Kamoingi when you were 19 years old. 
I don't know if you were the youngest member of the group in 1963. Yeah. Uh-huh. So what was it like being the young pup and trying to figure out how to exist in this kind of new space for you with a bunch of older guys? Well, let me tell you, <laughs> when I was in Boy Scouts, I had about 23 merit badges and I never wanted to do the photography one because it looked too difficult. But a friend of mine, I mean, my aunt had a friend who knew Adja Collins. I mean, she told them that I was very sensitive. So when I moved to New York in November of 63, just before Kennedy was shot, Right after that, they took me to a meeting. Now, I didn't have a camera, but I was taking a course, New York Institute of Photography, and I dropped out. They were showing how to develop film with a plastic reel. I said, oh, boy. When I found out, Kamangi said, well, this is easy with the metal one. But I didn't have a camera, but I bought a $20 camera made in Hong Kong. I went to these meetings, and here is the guy sitting there, and Roy, every meeting, someone would bring some photographs that belonged to the group and put up, and there would be all kinds of criticism about the photographs. But some of the members would say at times, I like it, I don't like it, but others went into detail, and I was soaking all this up. I was amazed at what was being said about a particular photograph. So I learned so much from listening to that, but it hasn't been done. I can still do it now, but it hasn't been done for years with the newer members. They even had guests come in and show their work, and some of them would leave going crying. Oh, How wow. I got into the group, it was just because I didn't have any photographs. But I started to take photographs. They did a portfolio, and they used one of them in a portfolio that they were sending out to different institutions like Aperture at that time. And I took some others before I was drafted in the Navy. So it was only about a year and a half in 65 in June. And I had taken some photographs. And when I was in the Navy, after boot camp, they had you, well, what is your... What did you do? And I said, well, I have some photography experience. They gave me structural mechanics. And it just so happened that I put up some of my photographs in a sidewalk art festival in Pensacola, because that was the first to a duty. And I won all these ribbons. So they decided to put me in a lab. And then there was an opening, and they decided to put me as the station's newspaper photographer. And I even won some award, I think, in Alabama when I sent a photograph that I took in Central Park of a man in the snow. <laughs> I said, well, this is well, this is very interesting. So once I started getting a feel of I was gung-ho all the time about studying photography, studying the photographers, listening to the group members, learning. I didn't grow up with anything but rhythm and blues, so listening to uh, jazz, reading. Well, I always read, even when I was small. And I lived in a hotel for a while when I first got to New York, near Times Square, called the Hotel Chesterfield. So I would read uh, James Baldwin. Now, lo and behold, all these years, and I got to meet, photograph James Baldwin. This all came like, it was never planned. It just happened this way. 
Well, I want to come to one of the pictures you made in Florida in a minute. But before we get there, you are in Kamoingi at 19 or 20 years old. And like you said, members of Kamoingi would bring prints and people would critique them. Were you showing the Kamoingi members pictures you made at 19 or 20? And if you did, what did they say about them? What do you remember them saying about them? No, I didn't show much then because I didn't have much. But I must have shown when they picked out a for this portfolio. I had taken um, a photograph through a, a bookstore window where you could see the books, but you could see a lady begging. And it was a reflection of the books. And you, she was outside on the street and begging. And they used that in the portfolio. But then, you know, it wasn't long before I went in the Navy. Then I went crazy in the Navy and I photographing every day down south. Well, one of the pictures you made when you were in the Navy in Florida is, for me, one of the great American pictures of the 20th century. It's a 1966 photograph called Liberty, Pensacola, Florida. Um, <laughs> what were the circumstances of that picture's making? Where did you find that neon sign? I would go into the city of Pensacola because the base was outside the city, and I would just go around photographing. I had a camera then. By that time, I had bought a camera. And I'm photographing people there. There's a lot of photographs during those years I was in the Navy that I went everywhere that I could. And one day I was walking down the street and I saw that sign of a bar, the Liberty Bar. And two things crossed my mind. First of all, I did not want to be in the Navy. And I missed being with Kamongi to learn more. And I saw that Liberty meant I was free. So it had that meaning, and it also had the meaning of the liberty of my people. And I photographed it, and I did photograph it in black and white and color. Did you like the black and white version first? Is that why you printed the black and white version? Well, everybody was doing black and white. It was mainly because of that reason. Mm. But I'm glad I shot it in color, too. Yeah, so when did you decide to print and show it in color? When me, Maisie and I were working on the book. Oh, wow. How about that? Yeah, nobody had ever seen it before. And people bought the photograph and they all got it in black and white. <laughs> I think we're going to have an image of it on manpodcast.com. The colors in the color version of the picture are red, white, and blue. Yeah. Which I'm uh, guessing attracted you from the start. I mean, that's, I, I'm guessing that was yeah, part of it your was, attraction it was to the that site. whole, it was a combination of, you know, being, somewhere that I didn't want to be. Later on through the years, I was really thankful that I was in the Navy at that time that I could go around photographing because that gave me time to everything I learned in that year and a half from Kamonge, I was out there photographing mm-hmm. every day that I had free. And I also got to practice photojournalism for the station newspaper and mm-hmm. doing the ideas of how they wanted a cover done coming up with them. So it was much better than I thought to be in the Navy at that time. And I met Larry when I was in Jacksonville, but I was only in Jacksonville for 10 months. But I drove all around Jacksonville area. I even did some fashion over there. I found a a woman who, she looked like Twiggy, and I would take some photographs of her. So I was practicing whatever I could. All I wanted to do was have a camera in my hand Always, I didn't want to go and teach. I didn't know enough about teaching anyway. I didn't have any college education anyway. 
that's what I did. As you look at the black and white version of Liberty and the color version of Liberty, are there things that you like better in each picture? You know, you think the black and white picture is better at this and the color picture is better at that? Well, I always like black and white first because that's how I started. That's the only reason. You know, the idea of being a photographer or being a painter is that you evolve all the time when you're working on it. You become, it becomes you at the same time. In other words, whatever you're photographing, no matter who it is, you're also photographing the feeling that you are transferring to another person as well. You're allowing them to relax and you are, your personality comes out in a certain way that makes them comfortable. So it's biographical, it's autobiographical that anything you take is you as well, your mental state and everything. So I always like scrapbooks. So <laughs> this is like recording my whole life through the years. Mm. Now, the preference of the, it's only because the first love, you know, was the black and white on Liberty, but I like the color as much. But it says more when you you don't have a conflicting thing with the, the color. I still like color for certain things. But there are some photographers who do color just for color's sake. Well, you moved back to New York after your time in the Navy. And while you were away, Kamoingi's meetings had, had withered. Or at least that's how Sarah Eckhart, the great curator at the Virginia Mm -hmm. MFA, describes it. And I started them up again. Yeah. Yes. Yes, you did. So why was restarting those meetings important to you, especially after those three years? Because it was like, I, I don't have any older brothers. I have seven younger brothers than me. And they were like my older brothers to me. And their knowledge about photography, art, people and everything is really important. It was so it was like a college to me. But it was also like older brothers teaching a younger brother. So I was eager to get out of the Navy. I couldn't wait to get home. It was like coming back home. So that was, I had to start it up again because this is what I've been waiting three years to do. So I was feeling everything that I learned in that short time from them. But also, it's not only from them. It's also from the way I was brought up by my parents, that caring feeling for people. That is the combination of it. It's not just Kamonge, but it's also love of family, love of people. So I always try to interject that some people go out here, some photographers go out here, and all they want to do is get their masterpiece photograph. And really, they're not photographing the subject in some cases. They're not photographing them. They're just bulldozing their way through and trying to get their great photograph. And lots of times, if you're shooting a person, you're not really shooting the person and how you feel to them and they feel to you. You're shooting you and how you think. And I'll give you a good example. There's a certain photographer that goes out here and in lots of cases, plans the shot before she even meets the person. And the good example of that is Whoopi Goldberg and a bath of milk. Now, that didn't come up when she went to the shoot. She planned that beforehand. So it has nothing to do with That's her statement. It has nothing to do with the personality or anything about Whoopi Goldberg. 
at all. When I go on assignments to meet people, to photograph them, or even the street, I try to feel the person and they feel me back and they relax. And I'll discover during that time, I'm not going to go plan to do this. In the case of Eugene Smith, when he spent that time in Spain or wherever it was, I think, that he didn't even take up a camera for a while. He watched everything before he, he lived there. That's the difference. That's a lot of difference. I have never gone to any and just planned my photograph. I never even met the person. And I only had one day to photograph them. I just feel the place that they live in, like Cher. I never met her before. When they sent me an assignment to go there for a New York Times magazine, they all they told me was that, well, I'd like you to get her in, not in those outfits that she wears, you know, when she's performing, but in some jeans. So I went there. Now, first of all, Cher had them send my book, and she sent back, but there's nothing but black people in the book. <laughs> I, I want to get another photographer. They said, no, you have to use him. I said, wow, they stuck up for me. So I went there, and I went to her house, and the hairdresser comes down and says, if she doesn't like the lighting, she's not shooting. I said, oh, my God. So I took a Polaroid of the my assistant, and lo and behold, and once she felt me in shooting, and I started off with letting her wear whatever she wanted to wear, because there's other photographs. She was fine. She, I stayed there the whole day. And she said, help yourself to the refrigerator. And at that time, I was drinking <laughs> beer, so I drank, drank a lot of her beer. Um, <laughs> she afterwards told the agent to take me to dinner and ask me if I had any ideas on a music video for her. I said, really? So I went and I did give some ideas, but in the end, she decided she wanted to do her thing. I can't remember the ideas I gave her. But how <laughs> that turned out is that it wasn't just the lighting. It was how she felt when she was being photographed by me. Now, I never understood quite. I just was always myself when I was doing these things. Later on, I realized that there's something within me that relaxes them. It's my approach or whatever. But it was never that I was going there with anybody and saying, well, we got to do this. Oh, we got to shoot you on horseback. No, I just, whatever I could see and feel in the surroundings, I did. Polite way, yeah. The share picture is from 1987. We'll have it on manpodcast.com. I want to come to a couple other portraits in a moment, but before we get there, I want to go back to Florida for a moment, because in, in Florida, you'd made a really conceptually purposeful body of work, a body of work that was full of critiques of the American nation, pictures such as probably my favorite of the bunch in the age of flight, Jacksonville, Florida from 1968. When you returned to New York after that time in the Navy, did you want to continue that focus, continue making critiques of of the nation or were you thinking back to new york new place new time new body of work well first let's go back to florida because i had never been down south before and when i came across this family and you you got to remember also that this is a hundred years after the civil war 
that I was inducted into the Navy in 1965. And I, I grew up in a, in, New Bedford, Massachusetts, and we didn't have any uh, signs that said for colored only and for white only. But I was shocked by the poverty that I saw. And I started going back to this family that was there, and I brought them certain um, gifts, and I would photograph them, and I was hanging out with them a lot. In my spare time, because at that time I was in Jacksonville, now, one of the photographers on the base told them what I was doing. And the government, I mean, the, the heads of the Navy said that I couldn't do it anymore. I was under their rule and the command. But I did do some of it before I had to stop because I was trying to do a whole picture story on this family. And that's, remember also, I'm what, I'm just about, 21, 22 now, I was eager. You know, when you find something that you really love, I went nuts. The only time I found something I really loved before photography was just reading. I would just, you know, read as much as I could. And I was like a loner because I was the oldest brother and they were all younger than me. So I was alone a lot. So I did have some friends, but I was passionate about photographing every chance I got because I discovered something I really loved. I didn't know what I was going to do when I, you know, got out of high school. So that experience and that opportunity in my free time was really something for me. And I just went crazy with it. And I still do in a sense, because when I got out and got back, it wasn't the same situation, but I, Opened up a studio because most of the Kamongi members were either teaching and doing photography in their spare time, except for um, Adja was doing photography for films, the film photographer, you know, he still yeah. photographer films, but most of them were teaching. But I didn't want to do that. I wanted to open the studio. I had practiced a little fashion. And I said, well, I can still do what I love. So right away, I started doing whatever I could to make money to support my projects. So the first project, I did fashion to make money. The first portfolio I took to Harper's Bazaar, they hired me to do the shop by mail. And it's $125 a month. And I have to do some still life. I never did still life before. I went in the dark room where the book was and I learned how to operate the camera because the camera that I used was a 35, but sometime I had to use their speed graphic in the Navy. I figured out how to use it and I was shooting still life for them and I was shooting fashion for them. So I was around photography all the time. But at the same time, I started my first project, which was Black Borders. Which was a portraiture project. Yeah. In the 70s, right? 74 to 80, I think it was. Oh, at first it was, it started about 72. And I'll explain something about it. Okay, when I did Hobbes, I was also shooting models all the time. In my spare time and on weekends, I would be photographing in the city, streets, going to Harlem, anywhere, always doing that. 
when I started doing, I had a lights and lodger in the Navy. And I noticed that with the lights and lodger, when you put a negative in to go make a print, you could get a border around it. So this is what I did. I would print up for the models and for myself, black borders, pictures of them because they pose for me and they get something for their portfolio and I get something for mine. Nobody in the business had been doing that. Hmm. They just cropped the photograph, no border. As soon as I did that, and this people don't understand because it's almost like people don't understand sometimes who originated certain moves that are dance craze. In this case, no photographers in the business in New York were doing that. And as soon as they saw that, they started doing it. So this is what I did when I started working on the Black Border series. I got a cardboard and handcrafted. You don't see it in the book because those are all silver gels and original prints. I handcrafted a Black Border so that it's irregular. And I called the series Black Borders because I had started that craze for that. And people didn't realize that. You know, after a while, people don't know where things come from. They started doing it. So a lot of model, model portfolios had the black borders that were perfect when you put the negative carrier and, and do the, make the print. So I purposely made an irregular on purpose by using a cardboard and cra handcrafting the negative carrier. That's how that happened. Now, afterwards, the Photoshop, they started putting black borders in. Yeah. <laughs> that goes all the way back to the 70s. Uh, people don't realize now of course there might have been but i don't know how old the lights and larger is that i use that maybe somewhere along the line before some photographer used black borders but i've never seen it before hmm. when you look in a magazine i mean a book on photography you never see the borders right truth truth yeah your history everybody crops right just the image so that's how that originated. And that's why, I, so nobody could copy that because I did it and that's why I titled it. Now it has two meanings, just like liberty has two meanings. Black borders mean that if you put both borders next to each other, the people in it, they relate to each other. There's no separation, but the black border is just, it merges with the other black border. Of course, you could do the same thing if you didn't have a black border, but this is what I looked at as being the other reason. The Black Borders series includes just so many famous people. Norman Lewis, Debbie Allen, Ruby Dee and Ozzie Davis, James Vanderzee, James Baldwin. Could go on and on. There are a There's couple... About, about 200 people I photographed for that series. Wow. And it's never been seen... When I won a National Endowment grant, I did a little book called Black Borders, a softcover book, and I was selling for $15. Now they sell it for 250 online. <laughs> uh, so, but the, the Black Borders, what happened was that when I started it, I was studying Richard Avedon's portraits and Irving Penn's portraits in the studio and you know, they would use a white background. They would use, Irving Penn would put people in a corner to see how they react. I said, really? And somebody that wrote about it one time mentioned these things. 
I wanted a specific. I didn't plan ahead of time. When they walked in the studio, some of them I knew, I would create the lighting right there spontaneously and create the background. Ah, so we should we should describe the backgrounds a bit. The backgrounds in the pictures are each individually distinct yeah. to the extent there is a commonality across them. Well, here, first, what 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 is the background? Is it cut paper? Is it? It's all kinds of things through the years. Oh, so I it changes. Cut paper, spray paint, certain lightings, oh. a double exposure like Antazaki Shange with, and mm-hmm. I knew her personality, so it would be one way and another way, one way and another way. Norman Lewis is like his, the lighting behind is like his abstract paintings. Boy, I was going to ask you about that exact thing to ask yeah. if that was. Could Roman you, I, Bearden is like, he's got a, like a shadow all around his body. It's like his collages that he cuts out. So I'm cutting him out in that sense. I mean, I could extend it further, but I once I do a project for so many years, I don't do it anymore. I went on to the next thing. I went on to about nine years of doing jazz. But I started by a few that I did with just plain backgrounds. And I said, but this doesn't relate to the people. Uh, Avedon used to get certain little quirky looks out of the his subject, or they just used to you know, look at a camera. I said, no, I got to get something else. That's how that developed. The Norman Lewis background is particularly striking because anybody who knows Lewis's work immediately thinks, oh, that looks familiar. And I think you did it with lighting because yeah. the Lewis mm-hmm. shadow. Pro- was that one you planned in advance or was that spontaneous no. with Lewis standing? No, I did you, not or? plan it in advance. Huh. I did not plan anything. I don't really, when I go on shootings, I don't plan anything. I'm just there. I mean, I've had, it's a little different because I also did advertising where they already drew out what I'm going to do. So what did I work on? The feeling of the models or whatever I was doing in it. That's different when um, I'm hired to do. But if I do magazine work, I don't plan anything. I'm there Mm -hmm. feeling and that's what I think of, I tell students, you know, a lot of people think too much. You got to start feeling more when you're doing photography and stop thinking so much. I also want to ask you about a couple of 70s pictures that are of people but aren't in the Black Borders series. One is a picture of Pat Evans from 1971, and another is of Grace Jones, which is from sometime in the 1970s. And in each of these pictures, both of which are just you know, mega iconic. And, and and indeed, the Pat Evans picture is the cover of this book. You emphasize in, in, in really every way you can, photographically and not, oh. Evans's and Jones's skin tone. And in this right. new book, Aaron Bryant, who's a curator at the National Museum of African American History and Culture, describes the Evans picture this way, quote, light strikes Evans's profile to enhance a stately complexion that has the dark polished quality of onyx. Onyx skin, therefore, defines beauty in this portrait, in contrast to the porcelain skin that traditionally defined beauty in European art. Could you talk us through your decision to emphasize or even maximize? This is going to be fascinating. (laughs) (laughs) In those two pictures? Okay. I'm in my first studio at 163 West 23rd Street. And two women that came to the studio a lot was Pat Evans and Betty Davis. You know who Betty Davis is? The singer? 
the Betty Davis of Betty Davis eyes? No, different Betty Davis. The Betty Davis that she sang for a while, she was the first one to start making funky outfits for her. Oh, she was yes. married to uh, Miles Davis. Yes. She yes. really created those looks before Grace or all of them in the 70s. And she was married to Miles Davis and influenced him to do some funk. Right. But she wanted to do some modeling. So I was, at first started photographing her and Pat Evans. One day, Pat Evans comes to me and says, I'm going to cut my hair. I said, are you crazy? She said, no, I'm going to cut my hair. I want to go bald. I said, how are you going to get any work? She did it. And I took photographs of it. And my brother at that time was my agent. He took some of the photographs around and can't remember the design company he took it to. They saw that and they were working on a, a makeup line called Estate. And they wanted me to photograph her. By this time, it's 1970, I had moved to a new studio, a bigger studio on 18th Street, 10 West 18th Street. And they gave me the assignment to photograph her. Now, it was her ideas and I didn't agree with it. But hey, when I did that shooting, French TV came and filmed us, Australia TV, but we never saw any of it. But getting down to the shooting, I'm shooting the headshots of her, and they look good. Now it's bad idea again. She says, let's do all black makeup. The reason why she came up with that idea was that some people used to tell her she didn't look black enough because she was light. That's why she did that. And it was her idea. Now, I'm sitting here thinking through my whole career, how did these things happen to me? Why me? <laughs> that I had the luck to run into her or whoever through the years. But it was her idea to do that. And boy, she had a hard time taking that makeup off afterwards. But I photographed her. <laughs> and to this day, because of the circulation of that photograph, now 1970, now that's seven years after I started photography. That's the most famous photograph that I've ever taken. Oh, really? Yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. Wait till you see the T-shirts that I made for it. <laughs> oh. I mean, sweatshirts, they haven't come out yet. <laughs> but I did all that, right? Okay, now we go to, and get this here. This is the truth. Okay, in 1970, Essence Magazine starts. Before she cut her hair, they hired me to do two pages. And there's three photographs on two pages. One is with Pat Evans, and she has hair. <laughs> well, the next photograph is a, a model named Carol Hobbs and Pat Cleveland, when the beginning of their careers, right? And the rest of the magazine, all the other fashion shots, except for the cover was done by a, a black photographer named Thomas. I can't remember, but he passed away. And all the other photographs, fashion photographs in the magazine, the first issue, Scavulo, Richard Noble, and some other white photographers, I can't even remember. I said, what is all this? But this is the reason why this happened that way. Okay. First of all, most photographers, black photographers, went on to, as their mentors, were either Roy DiCaraba or Gordon Parks. And it was either photojournalism or that street photography. 
the street photography, right? But there was no one that they could, as a mentor to them, look up to doing passion. That's why that happened. So they couldn't find a passion photographer. So mm. I ended up doing a lot of photographs for Essence Magazine. I think the last one I did was the cover was Spike Lee. But um, I stopped after a while. I did till 91, I think I did the last cover for them. Now we come to Grace Jones. Grace Jones comes to me and she's trying to get some tests because nobody's testing her. Nobody wants to photograph her. She's just a model and she couldn't get any work. And she even mentions in her bio book that came out a couple of years ago. So I started photographing her and taking photographs of her. And she would come back. Finally, I sometimes I would pick the model to be in the photograph. I was doing in 71, beginning of 71, I was doing the Christmas issue for Essence Magazine, in which I photographed. I gave her a first job, Grace Jones, as a model with the Chambers Brothers. And she wasn't known as Grace Jones, the famous Grace Jones at that time. So I shot her for her first job. Also, I got a chance to shoot with Isaac Hayes, uh, Pat Evans, because he, his people, the people that work with him on stage, the women, they were all bald. They got it from Pat Evans. I think it was Rudy Gernreich or somebody, Baden Suit, his models were bald. All came from the idea of what Pat Evans started. The first bald-headed model in the history of photography and the history of modeling. That's what happened. So I had to do, on that Christmas issue, I had to photograph Aretha Franklin. Of course, the fashion editors wanted her to dance because they're really showing fashion. So I did what they wanted, but I also got a photograph that I liked of her with her eyes closed, where I said, Aretha, make believe I'm kissing you. And she turned up her head and I just shot it. It just <laughs> came out and it had never been seen in the magazine because they didn't pick that. They had put a male model with her dancing. So I let them do, but I got my photograph until she passed away. And that photograph was in Getty Images. And in England, they said it was one of the photographs of the year. Now I took it in 71 and she died in 2018. Nobody had ever seen it before. It's a real, let me, let me jump in for a second. It's a really striking picture, unusual in your oeuvre a bit in the sense that the head and neck of the figure fill pretty much the entire frame. And it's really, I don't know, I think I would describe it as a pretty classical image, uh, an almost classical pose. Yeah, and it, it's really strange how all this, it's like I would just, the, the magazine would plan they want to put this outfit with this. I even shot Roberta Flack where she's moving with her outfit on. I, I think they're going to use it in her documentary. She just said that she has ALS now. She always liked that photograph. And what happened was that an album cover was being done. They used that photograph on the album and paid Scubulo. Oh. They called Scubulo's people and said, well, we're using this album cover. And they probably said, oh, yeah, it's Scubulo's. I had to go and get the magazine, copy it, and send it to them and show them that I photographed it. So they had to pay me <laughs> for the album cover. 
there are uh, a number of stories like that in your yeah. Smithsonian Archives of American Art Oral History. And I guess it doesn't surprise me, especially in an era before, I don't know, computerized recording and record. It's even worse now. Oh, is it? Oh, yes. I got so many. Um, oh, my God. Lauren Hill, they use my photographs to make T-shirts on Etsy and um also, oh, wow. the p- other photographs I took of Aretha Franklin, they're always doing that, and I can't do anything about it. But yeah, Getty has lawyers, and they had them to take it down, but I got to keep checking that. I don't have mm-hmm. time to do that. Before we move on from Pat Evans and Grace Jones, I mean, one of the things that really strikes me about those those two pictures, which are you know clearly related, is that the Pat Evans picture, you know, you described how it was... I don't know if enabled is the right word, but but extended or or furthered by makeup. And the Grace Jones one is not. The Grace Jones one is just Grace Jones. The only makeup she's wearing is a teeny bit of Vaseline to help the the reflection of the lights in the room or the, 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 the lights and the lighting. So that picture of Grace Jones is an extreme close-up. How did that picture happen and why? you know, at the risk of asking a completely silly question, why why were you interested in making such an extreme tight close-up of her like that first let's go back to pat evans yeah and you can almost hear her say is this black enough for you mm, that's almost yes, like you can. a statement you absolutely can. is this black enough for you okay yes. so that's that was that's really a good statement for that photograph because okay. she's wearing a she's wearing a kind of a, a, a silver choker and a silver right. hoop earring all of which pick up light and then make her skin look even blacker. So and they exactly didn't use that in the makeup ad. They use her mm-hmm. with her right. own face. Yeah, it's different. Yeah. But they couldn't. They're selling makeup. But now, okay, when we get to Grace Jones, Grace. sometime when I'm photographing someone, and I seldom do because nobody walks around with just a head. So most of the time, like most of the portraits, Blackboard series, you see some of the body. But graphically, sometimes you're looking at, and you know, you're just feeling your way around when you're photographing some. That's how I am. And I decided to go close up on one of them. I've only, like on Blackboarders, there's another portrait I did of Vanity that's real tight, that's real nice on his expression. But for the most part, all Blackboarders photographs, that's the tightest one I ever did. Even for the Blackboarders book, I have one Vanity with canes in his hand you see his body but when i looked at photography a lot okay one thing when you see a lot of magazine covers in those years it's always tight heads never that tight but it's just headshots i got tired of that anyway through the years when i was doing covers for essence until i went to um senegal and i decided to use my motion because i do a lot of jazz after the black border series 10 years of going to clubs at night and also working in daytime. I would photograph that. So I was determined to do, in most cases, to do more of the body. Now you see a lot more magazine covers, just the whole body sometimes. But in the 70s, they weren't doing that. But Grace Jones has a certain, we get along very well because uh, maybe I used to study astrology to the point that we could relate to each other because we're both Tauruses. And I always try to figure out how do I approach this person if I never photographed him before. This came on later in the years. 
but sometimes you get a certain feeling from someone that you two get along so well. It's like you going to a party and you are automatically as a male attracted to a certain female there in the corner or wherever. I don't know what it it says, but it's almost like you sense something. So nothing was planned with Grace Jones. I just went in and did her tight. And she was quiet, and it's all right there in the feeling. Now, the photograph is Grace Jones, but it's also my feeling, as well as her feeling, our combination. That's how I relate to everything. It's the combination of the person you're photographing and you. So it's just, it's like accidental in a sense, but it's not, it's not planned, but it just comes through. It's it's an extraordinary picture for lots of reasons. I suspect future art historians will have a field day considering that picture, that picture in the context of Egyptomania and the King Tut, you know, mania of, of the 1970s. I don't remember which interview I read this in, whether it was maybe the Maisie Harris conversation that's in the book or the Archives of American Art Oral History. The photograph finds you. Is that it? No, no, it was just oh. it was it was it was an interview in which you said you'd made half a million street photographs, which is astonishing. The six, no wait, seven, the seven that are surely best known and, and surely will be best known are pictures you made for the August 1971 issue of Essence magazine that ran with the headline Rappin'. You know, they're not the first melding of street photography and fashion. I think Richard Avedon and some others had, had, had been doing that thing before. But they're definitely different in the sense that there is kind of a narrative, not kind of, there is a narrative that runs across the pictures. And there's kind of a different and distinct sense of Culture. authorial. Yeah, and storytelling, for that matter. Yeah. What it is is that I came up with the idea that no fashion magazine had ever shot fashion in Harlem. That's the first for a magazine fashion shoot in Harlem. And I wanted to relate it to our culture because a lot of brothers will sit over there trying to pick up some of the women and they go talk to them. They start rapping to them. So I made the little storyboard. I didn't even draw it out. I thought it out and that's, I directed it right there in that spot. And that's when it was seen in the magazine, GQ wanted me to do one, a storyboard like that for them. So it was, this is for a white magazine. So what I did was that I had this couple coming down the road on a bicycle in Central Park. And this guy was on the side and his bicycle had broken down. So the guy with the girl got up to help him. And while he's helping him, the guy who owned the broken bicycle took off with his <laughs> with his girl on <laughs> the other guy's bike. I did that little story, <laughs> and that was published in GQ. Then I had worked for Abraham and Strauss department store for a year, and I did 14 TV commercials with stills. I have no copy of them now, but one of them was that I got my bank to open a vault and we did a little story where the model goes in to steal jewelry. Did a lot of that. So I did 14 of those commercials. Hmm. I still got some betas that I have to go through 
and see if I copied it when I used to copy things on a beta one TV, if they don't deteriorate. But that's how I got that. After that rapping, I got that idea of doing these little stories that relate to the people more than like most of the fashion models. They're there with the handsome guy or they're alone and they're showing their outfit and there's they're just standing there posing. It reminds me of when they had the showroom models and they walked down the ramp and they all got a, a face that no smile and nothing. That's, you know, it doesn't relate to anybody. So this, they think of it as that, oh, just look at the clothes and picture yourself with the clothes. Well, how about also picturing the feeling of the model and you feeling the clothes? You know, when you, a model, when a woman puts on an outfit, they feel that outfit. And they move with that outfit. So I've always had some movement in it. Roberta mm. Black really loved that outfit. She moved with it. So I didn't understand all that. I didn't come from, you see, I didn't learn fashion photography from assisting another photographer. Matter of fact, I couldn't even get an assistant job when I got out of the Navy to learn lighting because they would say, well, do you have an experience? I said, that's what I'm here for. So nobody would give me a job. So what I decided to do is teach myself. And I got my equipment and I taught myself lighting and I did it myself. I had to do every, I had to learn everything because I didn't know when the next job is going to come up. So I had to know. The first award I won was for shooting Chiquita Bananas. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, so I had to learn how to do everything. And boy, was I eager because I could make money and I could support and buy film for my projects. So I always had a project. Black Borders, about nine years. Jazz and Clubs, about 10 years. I always did street through the years. I get up sometime early in the morning, walk the street, and then go to work in the studio. Jazz, I would shoot all night, and then the next day, you know, they were up till three o'clock in the morning. I would get up and do any jobs I had or mm -hmm. I got. So I'd always work on a project. Every project I did, I learned something about people and you get ideas from doing what you love. Yeah. One of your commercial series, if you will, we're making, we're making the pictures that, that became movie posters. And in fact, it's a picture of yours that might be the most famous movie poster of the last 30 years, the the poster for the film, Do the Right Thing. You know, in, in every movie poster I can think of, including most of the ones you've made, you know, we, the viewer, are looking right at the people in the poster looking back out at us. You know, it's, it's a it's a direct-to-direct -direct relationship. Well, in the Do the Right Thing poster, we are looking down on Danny Aiello and Spike Lee and so on. It's a, it's a difference that inevitably makes the picture stick in our head. How did you come to be, you know, so to speak, looking down on Danny Aiello and Spike Lee? Why, 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 did you, why did you choose that vantage point? Well, they came up with the concept that they wanted a chalk, a little girl doing the chalk on the, on the pavement. First yeah. of all, we went to the studio, studio lot. We're setting up. Somebody comes by and says, you better not shoot any of the buildings because they had painted the buildings for a Dick Tracy movie. And uh, we said, we're just shooting down. So that was the idea with the little girl doing the chalk on there. And then Ariel standing there and Spike Lee 
Okay, the thing that people don't realize about it is when I shot that shot, first of all, I found the artist in California that would do the chalk on the ground there. So that was good. And I shot it and I noticed when I'm shooting it that, well, Spike Lee looks really tiny there. <laughs> so I had to I had to get a long lens and shoot just him closer up. So they put it so he can look bigger in the photo. <laughs> and people don't realize that that's what I had to do with that. <laughs> he is kind of tiny. He still is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he looked even smaller when you do I a, bet. a lens. <laughs> but I had to shoot it from that angle because that's what they wanted. Yeah. Lots mm. of time they give you the drawing and then you have to shoot it, light it. And then get the feeling that you think, because they can't draw the feelings. So I have to do that in a lot of them. When I did Denzel Washington, all he, I shot him in the studio and they put him over there on the beach there. And all Denzel Washington would do was uh, complain about how much money he was getting paid. I said this. <laughs> but I shot him, you know, mm-hmm. and not pay me enough. I said, oh, man, stop acting like, you know, they don't pay me that much. But they pay me more than my parents have made in the day, so I'm not complaining about it. But he's been in it for a while. So, but he must get paid really well now. <laughs> yeah, no kidding, right? Yeah. Two more. You have not made, or at least not published anyway, a lot of self-portraits. But in the 1970s, you made a great one called Self-Portrait Revealing from Within, it's in the new book and it features, well, on the right, we'll have it on manpodcast.com, but on the right-hand side of the picture, it is a shadow of your forearm and outstretched hand. And on the left-hand side of the picture, you are you are recessed in kind of a hallway and yeah. you just see your shadow against a distant wall. So it's kind of both a perspective study and and kind of shape or size shifting. And it's also kind of a, a picture about making pictures in a way that, that kind of reminds us of like Peter de Hook from, from 17th century Dutch painting, all of which is a long way of asking, did you, you know, wake up one day and maybe a hotel room or apartment somewhere and think, oh, I'm going to make a self-portrait here? Or was this an accident? Or how did this picture come about? Well, it found like, my statement's always been, you don't find a photograph, the photograph finds you. I lived in that apartment and I always had a camera. And when I see something, I don't think so much about what it means as much as it visual, I, it's visual to me. I just shoot it. But it, what it means is that I'm always reaching out for the never, next level of my mentality. And through my meditation, it will come out. So I start doing things in the I dream instruction that are without thinking, but it's seeing and feeling something, something magical about it. Uh, you might look at the, the photograph in the book called Film Noir. That was magical, too, where there's a girl next to a lamp that, and you can just see her eyes and you can see me leaning in with a shadow. It's surreal, I guess you would use the word, but it's in a state of mind that I call I dreaming that you get to this point that you photograph for so many years that you begin to meditate more and see things that you never noticed before. And there's a lot of photographs like that, but I was only allowed 12 in each section. So um, (laughs) I had to choose which ones, but 
it's interesting because um, I didn't go to Cincinnati exhibit and Nate Stein was over, was over there and went crazy for that photograph. He just loved the, it. The self-portrait or film noir? No, the self-portrait. Well, it, it's interesting because self-portrait and film noir are in a way the same picture done yeah. differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, they're, they're formally similar. There's more people. It's me there, but me not there. It's, it's like, that's my shadow, but my mind is just looking and feeling. And wow, it's magical when it comes out like that, boy. When you start, you didn't, I didn't plan any of those photographs. I just feeling and looking. Light landing on a surface. And that's what photography yeah, is. Yeah. I don't know if this one's in the book. There's one with a, a couple in the, uh, the cactus leaning one way. It, it, you know, it's funny you mentioned that because I was just going to say that the picture on the next page, a picture called Cactus, which is a so self-portrait and film noir make sense. Everything you need to understand them and understand them immediately is there in the picture. And then from understanding them, our brain puts together how their meditations on photography and even the subconscious and more. Whereas cactus, which uses some of the same interests, such as shadow and surface photograph about the making of the photograph, unlike the other two, cactus is totally disorienting. And I defy you to figure out how, you know, I I defy me to figure out how it was made. (laughs) (laughs) That's interesting because I shot it real quick and it's only one frame. And then I didn't notice it until I looked at the contact sheet. Oh, that's, it's about the couple and it's kind of prickly. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we'll see. <laughs> and, the, and, and the picture within the picture is cattywampus. So, yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's a cattywampus cactus. <laughs> that, that's why it's really magical when you get into that state of mind and you're just no planning. Yeah. And all of a sudden, something's, it comes into your vision like, the photograph found you right there. I, I'm still amazed by that. And I think a lot of photographers do that and don't realize it. Not the same as other photographers thinking, well, I'm going to do this style. But it becomes, this is my kind of thinking and feeling. But it's mm-hmm. mainly my kind of feeling. And then I look at it and see. So it's not so much thinking. If you look at, okay, let's take, for instance, Stephen Shaw. He had this idea in his mind so he went and photographed all those and they become repetitious in a way but they do make a statement about what he thinks so for me this i dream and state is this is how i feel and think and that's how they feel and think or that's how william eggston feels and thinks now mine is always searching within self theirs is always searching within self but what is the difference there is no difference. It's just each person, person's got a different personality. That's all. Mm. Well, Anthony Barboza, this was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for talking with me. <laughs> a lot comes out when I talk, I'll tell you. <laughs> oh, boy. Thank you for listening. <laughs> Organized by and on view at the Georgia Museum of Art at the University of Georgia through January 8th, Reckonings and Reconstructions, Southern Photography from the Do Good Fund, is the first large-scale survey of the Columbus, Georgia-based collection, highlighting a wide-ranging group of photographers diverse in gender, race, ethnicity, and region, 
It features 125 photographs by 73 artists, including Gordon Parks, Sheila Pre Bright, Mark Steinmetz, Michael Stipe, and William Christenberry, and asks questions that identify and complicate conventional ideas of an American South and Southern photography. Visit georgiamuseum.org for more information about reckonings and reconstructions, or visit athensga.com to plan a trip. California artist Alexis Smith is widely known for working in collage, layering quotes from film and literature with movie posters, album covers, advertisements, and newspapers. She highlights the narratives embedded in our culture, asking us to think critically about how they inform our sense of self and our society. Now, through February 2022, immerse yourself in Smith's collection of images and objects the recently expanded Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego La Jolla campus. From intimate artists' books to room-sized installations, visitors will witness film, literature, pop culture, and Hollywood reinvented. Plan your visit to the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego by going to mcasd.org. On view through April 2023 at the Getty Villa Museum in Malibu, the glorious new exhibition, Nubia, Jewels of Ancient Sudan, displays beautiful jewelry, metalwork, and sculpture that show off the wealth and splendor of Nubian society. Located in present-day southern Egypt and northern Sudan, the kingdoms of ancient Nubia flourished for nearly 3,000 years. The exhibition features objects from the Museum of Fine Arts Boston's collection. You can also discover contemporary artwork inspired by Nubia in Adornment Artifact, a series of sister exhibitions at five sites across L.A., Plan your visit and book free reservations at getty.edu. Welcome back. Next up, Micah Pollock joins me to discuss Tadashi Sato, Atomic Abstraction in the 50th State, 1954-63. to That's at the John Young Museum of Art at the University of Hawaii. The exhibition examines the first decade of Sato's career. Sato melded New York-informed engagements with modernism and influences from nature to become one of the most significant Hawaii-born painters of the 20th century. This is the first major exhibition of Sato's work in over two decades. It also includes work by several of his Hawaiian colleagues and reveals how they helped create space for artists and public art in what was then the new state of Hawaii. The show's on view through December 11th. Micah Pollock, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you so much for having me. One of the most interesting trends in art history over the last decade or so has been the de-emphasis of abstract expressionism in the story of mid-20th century art, particularly in the story of mid-20th century abstraction. And a lot of that story has been a re-examination of the trans-Pacific world from, say, Clifford Still and the East Bay shipyards to Gutai in Japan. And it seems to me that Tadashi Sato in this exhibition of yours is, is kind of part of that revision and expansion of what happened in, in, in the mid-20th century. But I think before we get into Sato's work, I should ask you to introduce us to Sato. Where did he come from? Where did he go? And where did he go back to? <laughs> <laughs> I first encountered this work by visiting the homes of collectors on Oahu and, and, and across Hawaii and was struck that many art collectors here have a beautiful and striking Kadashi Sato painting on their wall. I had 
not heard too much about the artist before and uh, got curious. He was born on Maui in what was the territory of Hawaii in 1923. And he volunteered to serve in the 442nd Combat Unit during World War II. He was Japanese-American, and he worked in the Pacific as a cryptographer, then studied painting under, like so many people in his generation, under the GI Bill. So he worked with Ralston Crawford, the American precisionist painter, here in Honolulu at the Honolulu School of Art in the summer of, I think it was 1947, and then... Ralston Crawford recommends that he go to New York and study. So in 1948, the beginning of our show, there are these very kind of jazzy, gouache on board, Stuart Davis-like paintings. So he was someone who who dove right into studying art at the Brooklyn Museum Art School at, at Pratt. And then from 1958 onward, he was represented by Willard Gallery in New York where his exhibitions were reviewed in the New York Times, The New Yorker, Art in America. And he is in permanent collections from sales at that time at the Whitney Museum, the Guggenheim, the Albright Knox Art Gallery, Yale University Art Gallery. And he's someone who in in the archives, if you look at who he was showing with in, say, 1958, which was the year of his first show at Willard Gallery, he was showing people compared his work to Paul Clay and Clifford Still, He was showing alongside work by Norman Lewis, Morris Graves, Mark Toby. So that's kind of his generation or context in terms of artists maybe in in New York that we're more familiar with. And he did return to Hawaii in 1960, where he's very well known here, particularly for creating the 36-foot glass mosaic called Aquarius in 1969. That's at the center of the Hawaii State Capitol in Honolulu. Well, let's start in the late 1940s then. In in 1949, Sato makes a painting called Subway, which is a kind of fusion of precisionism and hard edge painting, which Sato probably didn't know about yet as, as he was in New York and hard edge was still a West Coast thing. So how did Sato get to moving on from Stuart Davis, as, as so many did, Sato moves on from Stuart Davis pretty quickly, to mashing up precisionism with what are in some parts of this this picture some some really hard edged elements. Oh, interesting that you would move so quickly on from Stuart Davis. I see this as still <laughs> having many of the elements of if you look at Stuart Davis's introduction to abstract painting in America, the exhibition from 1935 at the Whitney Museum, he refers often to the shock of the armory show. And I think that Sato's 49 subway painting is is post, post, post cubist, you know, from the very limited palette of, of whites and browns and greens and blacks to the kind of expanded spatial geometries. I don't think he's trying to go for a taped look, but I think he's simplifying forms in keeping with, with his teacher's ideas about abstraction here. I don't see this yet as as a great composition, but I think it's very much in line with a precisionist ethos of painting, you know, modern urban life in the city and by extension the subway. And from drawings of the period from 1948 in the summer, we know he was taking the train and kind of drawing in a sketchbook all the express stops, like 96th Street, 23rd Street, as he was going from his 
then inexpensive apartment in Manhattan to, to Brooklyn to study art. So I, I guess I don't see this yet as, as a full realization of his personal style. And I see the limited color palette is actually lasting for him through much of the 1950s as well. But I do see in it an awareness of the kind of American impact of European modernism. And also, you know, in a, in a way that I think is kind of striking for an artist from a very beautiful place in the world, Maui, a, a real rejection of painting nature, the outdoors. I mean, he's painting the subway. Isn't that wild? He's, he's under nature. He's literally <laughs> he's under, under nature. Yeah, he's underground. <laughs> and then he goes on. There's another subway painting that I do think is kind of one of his first great compositions in 1954. Yeah, let me let me let me set that up for a second. So in your texts, you call a picture from 5354 of a subway turnstile Sato's, quote, first great composition, quote, and I buy it. And it's a refinement or advance of the ideas in the 49 picture, only now Sato's making a, a dynamic picture of contemporary life, which speaking of kind of that Cubist influence carried forward. So where is Sato living when he makes this painting? And why is he wanting to paint a subway at this point? <laughs> So I should say he's returned from New York to Hawaii by 1954. And he's he's working out of a studio building at 2220 Metcalf Street, which is actually right around the corner from the university. And he's working alongside a number of other young World War II veterans who had also used their GI Bill to study art. So these are young men who had gone to Ravenna, Italy, to the California School of Fine Arts, to the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, and then worked together on Metcalf Street. And there are great newspaper records from our newspaper of record, the Star Advertiser, from 1954, describing the scene that say these guys are artists at work, oblivious of the litter of paint rags, bottles, makeshift chairs, curls of cigarette smoke, young men lost in paint or canvas and clay, Greenwich Village with island accents. And then the writer who visited the studio describes these guys as living on a diet of beer, sushi, and pizza, which sounded so contemporary to me and actually prompted an extended discussion among the, the history faculty here as to how it was possible that they were eating not sushi, which was very normal for a place with a lot of Japanese Americans, but, but pizza in particular got challenged. And I had to point back to the newspaper and say, no, you know, these guys had, had fought. A lot of them were in the 442nd in Italy. And the newspaper actually clarifies that they paid picked up a taste for pizza while serving abroad. So, and even the name that they called their studio building, the Metcalf Chateau, is kind of joking and affectionately uh, referring to the French artistic tradition, right? Uh, we don't have a lot of chateaus here in Honolulu. So in 1954, when that subway painting is, is made and exhibited, Sato's working as a, he has a day job, but he's working as an artist painting with the Metcalf group here in Hawaii. They're evicted from their building in late 1954. The owner decides to sell the building and the group decides to do a kind of goodbye exhibition. They call it the Eviction Art Show. And it's do it yourself. I have the flyer from it in our show, kind of hand printed with a heavy emphasis on a giant martini glass and, you know, emphasizes that refreshments will be served 7 to 9 p.m. And so this we know this subway painting was part of that exhibition. And I think it would signify to viewers in Hawaii, not just his experience, his life experience, having lived in New York, but also that he studied painting there and emphasized his relationship to a modern abstract art style. And the painting itself is of a subway exit, and you can see white in the field beyond it. So it's, it's not pure abstraction by any means, but it's abstracted. 
And I think the, the viewer is exiting the subway along with the artist and kind of going out into the city and all the possibilities of the city. But it's a piece that the art museum here, which was then called the Honolulu Academy of Arts, Robert Griffing, he had studied at Yale and Princeton and saw that eviction art show and was he considered the group a significant development for modern art in Hawaii and invited them to exhibit at the museum. So their exhibition at the museum entitled Metcalf Chateau took place December 1954 to January 1955. And we know from records that this painting was also part of that exhibition, as well as a subsequent Star Advertiser, which is the newspaper Courtyard exhibition that is meant to, it's a solo exhibition of Tadashi Sato in a new art space in the 1960s that's meant to feature artists born in Hawaii. And so it's a piece that's been shown repeatedly here in Hawaii in its time, in you know, the 1950s and 1960s. And I'm very happy to show it in this exhibition. It hasn't been exhibited, to the best of my knowledge, in, in over 50 years. So not long after that show, Sato leaves behind that kind of precisionist, hard-edgy style, even though, I, you know, I, I think like, like, like you note, he, he'd gotten really good at it. So why did he leave it behind and what does he do next, which almost looks like it's a whole nother person? All of it looks like it's by a whole nother person. It's interesting. I think it's hard to say why an artist does something, but something you see by 1955, once he's left that Metcalf group, is his brushwork starts to take on this very typical of him, almost signature, glimmering, almost kind of back and forth brushstroke. That's very typical of his work from this point onward. He's still painting in an abstract style. And his works start to take on a kind of all-over abstraction, so they're not necessarily centered on the canvas, but imply a field that, that maybe goes in an imaginative way beyond the edges of the canvas. He, in 1955, goes to Japan for the first time on the Honolulu Community Foundation Fellowship. One can speculate, maybe looking in search of his roots, or, you know, I don't know why he would go to Japan, but he paints a painting that we have in the exhibition called Ginkatsukuji, after the Silver Temple in Kyoto. And that has a softer, more organic kind of dome shape in the middle and something that looks a little bit like a tree under that dome. It's hard to, to say for sure. Some people have said, oh, it's like branching coral. You see the typical brushwork again. And I think there's a sort of a, the subway pattern in the background of that painting as well. But I think he's someone who's, who's experimenting a little bit with his style then. But I still see the same palette. As in the earlier paintings, they're very much the same the same size. And I even see some of the background abstractions repeated. For example, in Ginkakuji, you have the same background that's in Subway Exit, New York, which is this kind of raking horizontal. And then also in 1955, he starts to paint oval shapes. So they're they're less hard-edged than the earlier abstract paintings. And, and at the time, he maybe would have called them more pure abstraction. But they also start to set up the, the submerged rocks of his later works, which is something he's very much known for here in Hawaii. Well, that, that raises the question of what are the submerged rocks and whether Sato is indeed thinking of rocks underwater or if that is a colloquialism. So looking at the work he's making in 1957, he, he returns to New York, where he moves to an apartment building at 350 West 110th Street. And he would live there alongside a number of other artists who were born in Hawaii, many of whom were part of this original Metcalf Studio group. 
Back in Honolulu, I found an article in the newspaper that quotes our own University of Hawaii art professor at the time, uh, Jean Charlot, as saying that the exodus of young artists from Hawaii because they feel the community climate is an inhospitable one is a movement that I regret but understand. And he says, there is a hope that someday Hawaii will develop an art of its own and singles out an artist in this Metcalf group, Satoru Abe, as someone who's creating a new art that could be called peculiar to Hawaii. So we see his awareness of the Metcalf group, but also the sense that perhaps the local scene is not sufficient to support these young artists. And Sato in New York prepares for an exhibition at the Willard Gallery that takes place in January of 1958. So he's painting at 350 West 110th Street. And the Willard Gallery reviews for his show in January 1958 are very positive. One reviewer calls him a surprising and sublime talent. And Art News called them fleecy, tidy, white, grayish canvases with brushwork applied in such a way that they catch the light and refract it like facets of a diamond. And one reviewer notes that the surface of the the paintings looks kind of like ripples of shallow waters and refers to the artist's native Hawaii. But I'm not convinced that the artwork at this point explicitly refers to Hawaii in any way or has anything to do with with submerged rocks for that, the paintings of 1957. I do know he was painting in the same building as a very significant Hawaii-born artist named Isami Doi, who's almost a generation older than Tadashi Sato and his group. And Doi's painting of 1957, which is in the exhibition, is really striking, both in that it has a little bit of this kind of branching brushwork, which is reminiscent of, or kind of has echoes of uh, Tadashi Sato's brushwork in that era. And I believe the men were very much in conversation. They were living in the same building because of one another and both making paintings. But Doi writes about this particular painting in this time in New York, in that dark apartment where the electric bulb had to be kept burning even during daylight. My brushes were picking up the colors of sunny Hawaii. It seems outrageous to think that one has to go to New York to paint Hawaii. And yet that was exactly what was happening. And I think in Doi's painting, you start to see an artist who's, you know, as opposed to this precisionist theme of modern life and, and painting the city, he's painting from memory. And he's a, he's painting his, specifically his memories of, of Hawaii. He would return to Hawaii in 1958. Now, Sato takes his family on vacation to Nova Scotia that summer of 1958 after his first very successful show at Willard Gallery. And it's there in Nova Scotia that he says somehow the experience in Nova Scotia sent back many images, memories of what I used to do practically every weekend back home in Lahaina, skin diving. I had forgotten about it really until that summer in Nova Scotia, where there was tremendous rise and fall of tides, very dramatic differences. The rocks were hard rocks, brownish, amberish, oliveish. That's where it started. And I haven't stopped yet. And I have a painting in the exhibition from 1958 from that summer where you start to see the, the oval shapes sinking into the background and the faceted brushwork explicitly taking on the form of of water and so those that's the beginning of the submerged rocks and so I think it's very much in conversation with what his friend and mentor Isami Doi was doing in 1957 and 1958 in the summer becomes a kind of almost Proustian moment for Sato where he's painting from memory and he's remembering his childhood as opposed to feeling compelled to paint the urban 
hard-edged world around him in the subway and all of these precisionist themes. So I think that's when we start to see his mature body of work emerge. And of course, Sato is not alone in being in New York, but painting, making paintings informed by, by other places. I mean, certainly Ellsworth Kelly does that when he returns. Clifford Still is painting Western Canyon lands or abstracting from them, even as he's annoying half the city, more than half the city. Sato is back in Hawaii as statehood happens. And shortly after statehood, as has tended to happen shortly after statehood across American history, there are debates about, public debates, about what the state should be involved in and and, and how to present and engage the state in all sorts of issues. And in this case, it's questions around public art and and how does Sato become involved in those and what are some of the things, some of the major works that result from those public discourses? Well, just, just to back up for a second, Sato continues to live in New York in 1958 and in 1959, which is the year of statehood. He's living at 350 West 110th Street alongside Satoru Abe, who is one of the original Metcalf Chateau building renters and artists who is now producing sculpture and showing at Sculpture Center and the Museum of Modern Art, alongside Tetsuo Chikubo, who's another artist who's part of this original Metcalf group, who in 1959 is showing in the Whitney Annual, which is later, obviously, the Whitney Biennial. He's in the catalog that year, right under Barnett Newman and two people above Georgia O'Keeffe, because they're listing them alphabetically, and his last name is Ochikubo. He receives a Guggenheim grant in 1959 for his work in lithography. There's a young artist named Harry Tsuchidana, who's also born in Hawaii, on Oahu, who joins them at 350 West 110th Street. He's still alive, and I asked him about statehood and if he remembers anything in particular from that year. And he said, oh, you know, we all got together and had some beer and peanuts and toasted the day when Hawaii became a state. But then he said, you know, we would have had beer and peanuts for almost any reason. (laughs) So (laughs) kind of emphasizing that they weren't particularly political group in terms of day-to-day politics, but they were a patriotic group of American veterans who enjoyed taking any excuse to drink a few beers. But But they were a very interesting group in that they were all born in what had been the territory of Hawaii. And then after 1959, One by one, pretty much all of them from this group returned to Hawaii. And some people have speculated that at that point, as veterans, maybe as Japanese Americans, they felt more of the ability to return to that place. I've asked many a time to Harry Tsuchidana and also to Satoru Abe, but haven't gotten much of a response from either of them on that particular point. But Tadashi Sato was showing with Willard in 1958, in 1959, 1961. He also showed in London in 1961, where his works are explicitly titled things like Queen Coral and Tide Change and Submerged Rocks, so things that evoke Hawaii. And two different critics in London compare his Submerged Rocks paintings to Water Lily Studies by Claude Monet at the time and write about how if Monet is looking at the problem of light, on water and reflected, you know, on the top of water and looking through water in color as an impressionist. Sato's doing that as an abstract artist. So he's achieving a certain level of success, but, it, but in 1960, he does return to Hawaii and make that choice to come back here. And he almost immediately becomes involved in public art projects. So Submerged Rocks is a 1962 painting that's eight feet wide that's in a public library. Is he involved in public artworks only in that he's making them or is he involved also in kind of 
discourses around how the state might encourage such? Well, speaking to his daughter, he had two young daughters when he returned from New York to Hawaii. And she says she remembers him asking himself, do I want my children to have the art, education and everything available in New York or the blue skies and fresh air in Hawaii? And she says, and he chose blue skies and fresh air. So it's kind of moving to me that he would almost immediately create this diptych of paintings. There were submerged rocks in the highest mountain for the Aina Public Library read, uh, children's reading room, which is presumably where children like his would be getting you know, education and culture in this new state of Hawaii. These are paintings for a public building they were commissioned directly by the library's architect, Edward Awatani. So there was no particular process in place for the commission of artworks in public buildings. And almost immediately, there's a, a very pointed editorial in the Star Bulletin, which is the newspaper, questioning this particular public artwork and, and asking, the headline is, should taxpayer money be spent on works of art? And it's noted that Sato received a significant amount of money at the time to create these paintings for the Ainahaina Public Library. There are different interesting questions raised throughout the editorial. One of them is, are the works too, quote unquote, far out or ahead of their time for public taste? And I thought that was a really great question in the language of 1962. And I think it refers to Sato's abstract style. You know, it, it, it's a submerged rocks painting, but it is also very far out, perhaps, to some viewers. It's a, it's a challenging work of art. It's very like what he's been showing in New York and London. And so I think a, a legitimate question that this editorial raises is, if taxpayers are paying for public works of art, what should those artworks look like? The artwork was commissioned directly by the library architect. So the article does kind of question if that's the best way to commission public artworks. But it ultimately comes down on the side of having public artwork. It, it says the paintings represent about 2% of the budget for the creation of the public library building, and that maybe this is something that people in, again, the new state of Hawaii want to consider if, if we're paying for taxes for architecture and for design and landscaping. Maybe art is a public good. And the article recommends having a 2 to 3% budget for artworks and says for artists who object to Tadashi Sato getting the lion's share of these public commissions at the moment, they should think about the future and realize that if this is instituted as a public program, all artists in Hawaii will benefit. So I think it, it kind of comes down on the side of having public art and raises this up for debate. And then just the next year in 1963, we see one of Sato's most significant artworks to date, a 65-foot painting called Build the More Stately Mansions in Wailuku, Maui. That's unveiled in 1963. It's a war memorial. And with this artwork, he's again commissioned directly by, in this case, Maui. So there's no official agency created to commission artworks, but it's a war memorial. He's seen as someone very appropriate for this commission. He's born in Maui. He served in the war. He's a famous artist, particularly for Hawaii. And almost immediately from the opening, the mural creates a lot of controversy in the newspapers. Some people love it. The critic from the Honolulu newspaper, the Star Advertiser, flies over to review the mural and compares it to Picasso's Guernica, another great painting about war. Another person in the newspaper says, forward-looking art indicates a forward-looking community. But others deemed the abstract style unsuitable for a public memorial. One parent whose child had died in the war complains a memorial should be in a form that means something. 
and an op-ed in the Star Advertiser that comes out a week to the day after the memorial is unveiled says, when the taxpayer is the one who's paying for art to be put in the public structure, the art should be of a type which carries a message to the people as a whole rather than to a limited group. And so I, I found these debates very interesting. They are throughout the newspapers in Maui at the time, as well as those in Honolulu. And it seems like they interview a, a huge number of people, I mean, several dozen people about what they see in the mural, whether they like it or not. Some people say they understand it and kind of do this very schematic reading of the different sections of the mural, like uh, it represents the destruction of war and rebirth after the war. And other people say they, they don't necessarily understand it, but they like it or they're proud of it. Other people say they don't see anything in it and why are the taxpayers paying for this kind of thing. But I, I think within those different discussions is, is a sort of larger question of what is art in, in this new state? Who are the audiences for art? The newspapers interview priests, dentists, presidents of various art clubs, school teachers, the mayor. And it's rare, I think, in public life to have a moment where you really see a large number of people weighing in on artwork in a discussion that feels fairly nonpartisan, except to maybe come down on uh, questions of abstraction versus representation. And I was struck by how much it evoked for me some of the discussions around Maya Lin's war memorial and Vietnam memorial in the 1970s. Yeah, this is a decade before that. Yeah. Well, yeah, a decade before that, in the middle of the Pacific, <laughs> where we are, uh, this, this, I thought, very sophisticated debate about public artwork. And about a year later, in 1965, in Hawaii, we saw the formation of the Hawaii State Foundation on Culture and the Arts, which creates an architecture to, to regulate some of these public commissions. In 1967, we passed the nation's first percent for art law and also the Art in Public Places program. So we've had the earliest 1% for art law in the nation here. There were certain cities and counties that had it in place, but Hawaii as a state passes that, and that's still in place today. And it coincides with, not coincidentally, a huge boom in construction and development and tourism in Hawaii. And some of the architects of that program, who are also supporters and, and patrons of Sato, for example, this guy, Pundi Yokouchi, who is a huge developer on Maui, but also a huge supporter of art. He and his family founded the Maui Arts and Cultural Center, were supporters of Sato, were very well aware of these debates around public artwork, and clearly, you know, supported public artwork. And so they helped pass these laws and were the architects of these laws that kind of enshrine the right to public art in Hawaii to this day. And so I, I, when I first arrived here, they invited me to serve in a board, which I think a, a lot of people, arts professionals here do, to visit exhibitions and purchase artworks for the Art in Public Places program. And that's funded by this 1% uh, tax on, on new building in Hawaii. And that comes directly, I would argue, from the debates that took place around these early public works by Tadashi Sato. Let me pick up one thing from our conversation about submerged rocks in, in a public library. In Hawaii, the public library system is a state function rather than a county or municipal function, the only only such place in the United States. I was only able to borrow the painting because I work for the University of Hawaii and we are also a state entity. So there was this very funny series of phone calls that took place where initially I thought the painting might be part of the 
art in public places program because the librarians told me it was. They said, well, you know, contact the Hawaii State Foundation. That's where all the art in the libraries in Hawaii comes from. And and they have this fantastic program where there actually is kind of amazing artwork all over the libraries and the state capitol building. And I spoke to the state foundation and said, we have absolutely no record of that painting. I mean, it's a nine and a half foot painting. It's, it's a very large, significant artwork. And, and it kind of made sense too, because it was painted in 1962 before the state foundation existed. So I went back to the library and I said, you know, I think this is yours, like belongs to the library system. And they, they really, you know, were kind of surprised as I think Maui is by the fact that they own the 65 foot war memorial because so much of that function has been turned over to the state foundation at this point. So it took a lot of paperwork, (laughs) as is the case with any state bureaucracy, to first kind of convince them that they own this painting and then get the archives that were associated with the painting and then get the permission to borrow the painting. But I'm delighted that we did, not least in part because the highest mountain, which was the kind of diptych of submerged rocks, had the library uh, records indicated that it had been destroyed, that it had suffered termite damage in the late 80s, and they had contacted the artist, and then the next record show were kind of about how they had to officially destroy the painting. And then one of the collectors to the show was showing me some artwork by Tadashi Sato that his sister owned, and there was a huge painting, and I said, wait, 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 that one, (laughs) what year is that one? He said, oh, I don't know, it might be 1970s, untitled. I said, no, 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 get her to send us a photo of, of the the date and the signature. And it was 1962. The, it, the painting was the missing highest mountain painting. It had been unframed. It had damage consistent with the damage the library described in its archives and letters from the late 1980s. And so we were able to reunite that painting with its name, with its provenance, with the sort of history of its commission. And it's now been donated to the Maui Arts and Cultural Center so it can remain on public view since it was always intended as a public artwork. Micah Pollock, thanks very much. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.